please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Revelation, chapter 5. Book of Revelation, chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. And I saw in the right hand of him that sat on the throne a book, written within and on the backside, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the book and to loose the seals thereof. And no man in heaven, nor in earth, neither under the earth, was able to open the book, neither to look thereon. And I wept much, because no man was found worthy to open and to read the book, neither to look thereon. And one of the elders saith unto me, Weep not, behold, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David hath prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. And I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne and of the four beasts, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him that sat upon the throne. In recent weeks, we have had occasion to observe that fallen man, even in his fallen condition, knows that there is a God and he knows that he is a sinner. These are important things to come and keep in mind when we come into contact with people in the sharing of the gospel. Frequently, we will get led down rabbit trails trying to prove to people things that they already know full well. When what is needed rather than proof is an assertion of the gospel and the way of salvation. Fallen mankind already knows the problem. There is a God. He is a sinner. And all around, there are signs of God's anger with mankind. These are uncomfortable facts. And so, as Paul says to the Roman Christians in the first chapter of that epistle, men do everything they can to suppress their knowledge of this uncomfortable reality. You can see how this would be the case. If a man knows that his sins will bring destruction on him, and yet he is intent in, on continuing in those sins, he must give up the one or the other. He must either give up his sin, or he must give up the knowledge that causes the discomfort, suppress it, and bury it in some way. Men have suppressed the knowledge of God in many ways in history. Sometimes they've done this by an express denial of the very existence of God. This has been 
relatively rare in the history of the world. This is something that has been somewhat peculiar to our modern age, where men have tried to suppress the knowledge of the coming judgment by suppressing the knowledge of the very existence of God himself. Men have become brazen and bold in this day and age. For most of the history of the world, the suppression has been much more subtle. Men have suppressed this knowledge by the invention of an idol, a different God with whom he could be at peace, a different God who would in some measure be an approver of his sins. You might think of the gods of Greece and Rome. These gods were greater sinners than most mortal men. And so mortal men could always reply to them, who are they to blame us? And so here they invent gods with whom they can be at peace. Gods who will not blame them for their sins. A very large share of humanity has suppressed uh, his knowledge of the coming judgment, not by suppressing his knowledge of the existence of God, but through works righteousness. Perhaps if I reform and do better, God will be at peace with me. And yet we also had occasion to observe that this is not satisfying. The conscience still accuses our imperfect, fallen, human conscience still accuses. And so what do we think of the great God of heaven, perfect in holiness? Will he not all the more accuse and that in perfection? In our day and age, if I might make a couple of observations, our day and age in America, I should say, some of the suppression seems to be by the creation of an idol. I've done my best. The great God of heaven is merciful. Certainly he will pass over and simply forgive my many sins and approve of me. There's little more reason for this than surely the God of heaven will approve of me because I approve of me. I find it very difficult to believe that he won't. But our culture also, and I think to an ever increasing degree, suppresses the knowledge of the coming judgment by distraction. By simply refusing to focus the mind upon it. There have been books written about our culture entertaining itself to death. And so it is. We uh, find a great many ways to simply distract ourselves and simply refuse to focus upon the problem. And if I might say so, it's not just uh, a problem that belongs to unbelievers, but to believers as well. We do this. In the great business of temptation and sin and sanctification if we think about the course of our lives we will find that a great many times we simply refuse to focus upon the problem and we find comfort not through a redemption in Jesus Christ but simply by refusing to look at it it works something like this 
Temptation comes to us. It stirs our desires. It stirs the sinful desires. The corruption that yet remains in the heart. We refuse to focus upon the reality of God and the reality of His presence with us. Why? Because we do have some intent to fulfill these desires that have been stirred in our hearts. And so we succumb to the temptation. Perhaps an illustration might be helpful. Children, do you ever do something like this? You do a sinful thing. You hide it from your parents. And then you walk away from it like you were able to get away with it. My parents didn't catch me, so I've gotten away with it. Theologians have a term for this. The the denial of the existence of God in thought, in the system of thought, is what they call theoretical atheism. As I've said, it's a relatively rare thing in the world. Practical atheism is a practical denial of his existence and of his presence with us. And when we do sinful things and hide them from the eyes of other men and then walk away in some measure of comfort believing that we've gotten away with it, this is practical atheism or practically living as if there is no God, even if in our minds we say that we believe that there is a God. This is not something that is limited to children. We do this as well as adults in succumbing to temptation, refusing to focus upon the reality of God, hiding our sins from other men, and then believing that we have, at least in some measure, gotten away with these sins. I bring all of this up because our text reminds us of Christ's presence, His observing eyes and the reality of his power in our midst. You will remember, no doubt, where we are in our text. We have now come to the proper matter of the book of Revelation, the scroll that is in the right hand of God. God here portrayed as sitting upon the throne of the universe. John's immediate problem is that the book is sealed. So he has been promised a revelation, an opening, an unveiling. But now that he has come to the book, the book is sealed up tight. The angel calls out who is worthy to open the book and to read its contents. And there's not a creature found. Not in heaven, not on earth, not under the earth that is worthy to take the scroll from the hand of God, to open it and to reveal its contents. And John mourns. One of the 24 elders approaches John and tells him not to weep because although there is no creature found worthy to open the scroll, there is yet one found worthy who has prevailed to open the book, Jesus Christ, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, and the root of David. The elder tells John to look 
and John does look. He looks to the throne, which is where you would expect to find the offspring of David. But then he sees a strange sight there. He doesn't see a lion. He sees a lamb. A one that is, as it were, slain, crucified for sins. And yet standing in his priestly character, as it says in the epistle to the Hebrews, ever living to make intercession for his people and to represent them in the great business of redemption. This strange description of our Lord Jesus Christ continues in the second half of verse 6. He is described as having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. Children, isn't this a strange description of the Lord Jesus Christ? The elder said, behold, the lion. And then John looks and he doesn't see a lion. He sees a lamb, one that had been killed and is yet standing. And it has seven eyes, not two, and seven horns. Hopefully we've gone far enough in the interpretation of prophecy that you are able to unpack some of this imagery. What does the number seven represent? It's the language of fullness, completion, perfection. Just as a week is full, perfect, or complete when the seven days have passed. What is the significance of the fact that this lamb is portrayed as having horns? Think about antelope or rams. What do they do with their horns? And that will tell you a lot about the significance of this. For the most part, they fight with them or protect themselves. Horns from ancient times have been symbols of power, authority, position, strength. The strength of a ram is in its horns. Its ability to fight is in its horns. What would the significance be in that the Lord Jesus is portrayed as having seven horns? except that he has the perfection or fullness of power. There's a theological word for this. They call it omnipotence. From two uh, Latin words, omnis, which means all, and potentia, which means power. All power. If you've paid attention to sermons at all, you will know that omnipotence is properly an attribute that belongs to deity alone. And here we have a very strong assertion of the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not just that he's sitting upon the divine throne, but that he has divine attributes. Later on in the book, we will see this image again, so don't forget it the great enemy of the Lord Jesus Christ in this book is the beast. And this beast will be, will be portrayed as having ten horns, which are ten seats of power, ten kingdoms and ten kings. But we'll come to this 
later, but I want you to, there's going to be a certain consistency in the imagery. The Lord Jesus is also portrayed as having seven eyes. When a creature has eyes, what does it have? It has the ability to see. It has vision. And what uh, would we say that seven eyes would signify? But a perfection of vision. There's a theological word for this as well. Omniscience. The seeing. The knowing of all things. Once again, another divine attribute. Our Lord Jesus Christ here is portrayed as having in himself the fullness and perfection of power and knowledge. But then we are told something else. That these seven horns and seven eyes are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. To put this in uh, proper theological language, we would say that the Lord Jesus Christ, as mediator, as the God-man, exercises his power and his knowledge through the Spirit. You'll remember that he is everywhere, and we'll come back to this, called the Anointed One, the Messiah. And his anointing is with the fullness of the Spirit. And he exercises his office as the God-man through the power of the Spirit. The spirit that was given to him as mediator without measure, without limitation. Notice here also that he exercises both his knowledge and his power by this spirit throughout all the earth. Seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. Hold your place in Revelation, but turn back with me to Isaiah chapter 11. There's a most interesting connection. Remember, we had occasion to observe that the elder in proclaiming Jesus Christ as the root of David was proclaiming him as the fulfillment of ancient prophecy. Most immediately, this prophecy in Isaiah chapter 11, where he is called a rod out of the stem of Jesse, David's father. He's a branch out of Jesse. But in this prophecy, he is said to, as the branch or the root that is sprouted out of Jesse, he's portrayed it's having the fullness of the Spirit resting upon him, and primarily in two regards, with respect to his knowledge and wisdom, and with respect to the exercise of his power and government. So look again with me, Isaiah chapter 11, beginning at verse 1. And there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of, the knowledge, of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord, and shall make him a quick understanding in the fear of the Lord. And he shall not judge after the sight of his eyes, 
neither reprove after the hearing of his ears. But with righteousness shall he judge the poor and reprove with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall smite the earth with the rod of his mouth. And with the breath of his lips shall he slay the wicked. And righteousness shall be the girdle of his loins. And faithfulness the girdle of his reins. So here he is portrayed as being the recipient of the Spirit. Interestingly enough, portrayed as the sevenfold or fullness of the Spirit. In Revelation chapter 5, he is portrayed as being all-seeing. That he sees not with eyes and he hears not with ears, but by the Spirit he has perfect knowledge and perfect wisdom for judgment. And then in the execution of acts of government, he is powerful and irresistible. So he judges perfectly. And then in the exercise of that judgment, in its execution, he cannot be resisted. So here in some, we find these very same elements. The gifting of the Holy Spirit in fullness, in doing him with wisdom and knowledge and power for the execution of government. One final question, and we'll come to some practical uses A question that we've had occasion to to address already in the book a time or two, but our times get stretched out. So by way of review, why is the Spirit described here as seven? Which has been a great puzzle for many uh, interpreters. Remember earlier in the book we saw a great reason to describe the one Holy Spirit as seven spirits inasmuch as he was being described with respect to his activity, which is distributed. In other words, the church was portrayed as seven. You remember the seven churches of Asia Minor were used as representative samples of the various kinds of church conditions you will find throughout the, the world, throughout all ages, different spiritual conditions. The spirit was portrayed as being active in those churches. But you can see why the portrayal would be distributive. He's one spirit, but he's active in all of these different places, in all of these different people, and through a great diversity and multiplicity of gifts. Remember our considerations in uh, 1 Corinthians chapters 12 through 14. One spirit, but a multiplicity or diversity of giftings. Look back at Revelation chapter 4, verse 5, and you'll, you'll see this. This is earlier on in the, in the description of the throne room. I want you to notice something very interesting here. Out of the throne proceeded lightnings and thunderings and voices. Chapter 4, verse 5. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Remember in chapter 1 that the seven burning lamps were the churches. But here, the churches are portrayed as being filled with the Spirit and illuminated by the Spirit. uh, Conveying the idea that uh, the candles are just dead things. 
unless they're animated by the Spirit, unless they have the flame of the Spirit uh, within them. In the throne room scene, now we're starting to get a fuller picture, the uh, sevenfold Spirit illuminating the churches is portrayed as being in front of the throne, before it, and now on it, in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. The anointed mediator has the seven eyes and seven horns, uh, which are the seven spirits of God. And note also that those seven spirits are sent abroad into all of the earth, illuminating the churches and spreading that light into all of the world. In describing Jesus Christ with seven horns and seven eyes, the same distributive acting is in view. Christ exercises his power and his vision. He's just one Christ. We might say with one knowledge and one power, but it has its activity distributively in many places among many people and for a great diversity of purposes and ends. Interestingly enough, before we proceed, and we could stop, remember this is St. John the theologian. What a beautiful picture you have of the Trinity here. The Divine Father sitting upon the throne, ruling over all with the scroll of history in his hand, in control of all things, the Lord Jesus Christ also upon the throne, full of vision and power, omnipotent and omniscient, but as the mediator representing his people, accomplishing their salvation and pleading that salvation at the throne of grace. And the Spirit of God also there, omnipotent and omniscient, and also upon the throne, although active in all of the churches of the earth. So what a full picture we have of the Trinity. When you go back and you think about the very first chapter and the blessing, grace be unto you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits which are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the first begotten of the dead, and the prince of the kings of the earth, all upon the throne here in Revelation chapters 4 and 5. A beautiful picture of our triune God reigning and ruling over all things. I find that my words can hardly do it justice. You want to see the glory of it. Just read the chapter again and again and you'll begin to see this glorious picture of our God. With respect to the uses of the seven horns and seven eyes, there are many and much in every way. First for the unbeliever. If I might digress for just a moment. I do remember very early on as I was being trained to preach, I was from time to time reproved for addressing the assembly as if it were unbelieving. 
And of course, I don't mean to imply that I believe the assembly to be unbelieving. But when you look in our larger catechism, and I do believe in the word of God, the preacher is admonished to always remember that he's really uh, addressing three sorts of people. He is addressing unbelievers that need to be driven out of themselves and to Jesus Christ. He is addressing believers that have the very same need, that need to be driven out of their carnal security and their comfort and be driven to the Lord Jesus Christ. And he uh, is addressing the patient faithful who need to be encouraged in the way. All three of these kinds and conditions are, are to be addressed and remembered in preaching. And we find in the churches of the New Testament that the apostles were never um, shy about extending admonitions to those that might yet be unbelieving in their midst. Read the epistle to the Hebrews where he calls them again and again to examine themselves lest there be found among them a wicked heart of unbelief. Now here you've got a professing assembly but the possibility of a heart of unbelief yet among some of its members. For an unbeliever to think of Christ as all-powerful and all-seeing is a terrible thing. You think of him as being omnipresent and seeing your sins. This strikes at our practical atheism indeed. You cannot escape from his presence. You cannot escape from his vision. Pretend what you will, but you are just pretending. He sees and he knows. Distract yourself as you might. He's not liable to these distractions. And there is no escaping his vision. With respect to his omniscience, you are guilty and he knows that better than you do. He knows what you know about yourself. He knows what you hardly can admit about yourself and he knows a great many more faults that have not yet uh, passed before your eyes. He knows you perfectly. His judgment concerning you is just and true. Remember it was said in Isaiah chapter 11 that he's able to discern or set a difference between those who fear the Lord and those who don't. And it's not with the uh, seeing of the eyes and the hearing of the ears that can be fooled by religious pretense. But he sees these things by the omnipot uh, omniscient spirit. He sees us perfectly. And he is omnipotent. When he uh, pronounces judgment against us, there is no power in heaven or on earth that can resist his hand or deliver us out of his hand. If there is anyone among us who yet has a heart of unbelief, God in his mercy has still given a season to escape. To fall into the hands of an offended God is the ultimate calamity. Earthquakes are bad things. Tsunamis and nuclear disasters are bad things. Hurricanes and tornadoes. But they are nothing compared to to the infinite, eternal, and unchangeable wrath 
of the living God pulled out in the fullness of its fury. But he has given a season of escape. Christ is set before us with all of his saving benefits with a command to repent and to turn away from our sins and to believe the gospel. God calls upon us and he commands us to run that wrath is coming and to grab hold of Jesus Christ very much the same way that a drowning man would grab upon a, a life raft or a life preserver. Because apart from Christ, there is no hope. Repent and believe the gospel. This uh, portrayal of Jesus Christ is also useful for us uh, when we are erring as believers. We are capable of all the same pretenses and self-delusion. We act when we sin as if there is no God. When we refuse to focus on the reality of his presence, we become practical atheists. Consider uh, secret sins. How many times have you thought to yourself, you were concerned that another person was going to discover your sin? He didn't. And so then you didn't think very much about it, as if you had gotten away with it, as if you had escaped. Think about the secret lusts of the heart that no human being can know. We tend to think very little of these things because other people are not aware of them. But when we weigh these sins of the heart lightly, because other people don't know about them, we live and act like atheists, as if God did not see. When we have secret conduct that we hide from the others and treat in the same way. Think of your gossip and your hurtful words. And you thought that when the object of that gossip didn't discover it, that you had gotten away with these things. You have to understand all of this is atheism in a practical way. Christ is portrayed here as seeing all of these things. And the business of the Christian life, we always, with respect to fact, live before his face. Part of the great business of the Christian life is learning to live in the awareness of that reality that we are ever before his face. Think also of um, less egregious sins. Sins for which another, no other living human being will blame you. And because other men don't blame you, you imagine that you are free from blame or blameworthiness. In our day and age, there's almost no regard for the Sabbath day. And so there's a hardly a human being on the earth that will blame us for our Sabbath practice. But does this mean that we are keeping the Sabbath day? Does it mean that uh, when, when no other human being will blame us, that we are not yet blameworthy in the eyes of the Lord? How many times have you violated the Sabbath day and comforted yourself with, well, no, since there is no Sabbath keeping, nobody's going to blame me for this. Perhaps not even the 
people in my own church with the same beliefs. And yet the Lord sees and he knows and he judges and he judges according to the perfect and strict sense of equity and justice. You know, um, during the, uh, the time of my theological education and the, my preparation for uh, the ministry, I did uh, labor as vigorously as I ever have in my life during those seasons to try to attain to the knowledge of God and probably came as close as I ever have in my life to giving the word of God the attention that is due to it, that properly belongs to it. I dare say that during that time there was not a single student at Westminster that would have blamed me or held me to be at fault in my study habits. But I can also tell you that there was not a single one of those hours in study that I ever did love the Lord my God with all of my mind. Not a single hour blameworthy. Should I take comfort in the fact that there were no students left to blame? The Lord in heaven sees these things. The Lord Jesus Christ in his perfection views these things with eyes of perfect justice. It's not easy to to press beyond it. But we do need to get past the fact that living according to other men's judgments, which are always flawed and superficial, and begin to live before the presence of God, the Most High. The older thinkers called it living quorum Deo. It's a good Latin phrase. Learning Learning to live before the face of God living in a relationship with him. Well, if we are wrapped up in such errors, the word of God will set things right. Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and opened unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Naked and open. He knows perfectly. And when you get into the 12th chapter of Hebrews, We also learn that although with respect to believers, God remembers wrath no more. Make no mistake, he will chasten us sore. Our Father knows what is good for us. And if we are intent on running headlong in sin and justifying our sins in all sorts of ways, he will whip that out of us. Just the way that a loving Father will whip these things out of us. The solution when we find ourselves living with this kind of practical atheism is the old gospel solution. That same old gospel ever new. We go for forgiveness, pleading the shed blood of Jesus Christ and that alone as an atonement for our sins. We go pleading, not our deserving, but the richness of God's mercy in Christ Jesus. 
so that we might find forgiveness. We go pleading the covering of His righteousness so that we might be received as justified persons. And we go seeking Him daily for strength so that we might repent of those sins that are only too well known to Him and seeking strength so that we might walk day by day in that repentance. We ought not to be naive with respect to repentance. Repentance is rarely a one-off event. But we must walk in repentance. Think of that sin that has um, so easily beset you. You have apologized for it time and time again. We need strength to walk in that repentance. To turn from that sin in abhorrence and remain turned as we continue to walk in this Christian life. I had occasion this week myself to repent of my own atheism. It It is something of a disease that once it takes hold, it will kill growth altogether. And you'll not go forward. As soon as uh, you find that men stop accusing, at that very point you'll stop growing. And it ought not so to be. The standard is Jesus Christ and not the fallible judgment of other men. But I have one further application for uh, the sincere and troubled believer. In our belief in the Lord Jesus Christ, we can and frequently will find these attributes marvelously changed in our eyes. What had previously been terrifying suddenly and strangely becomes a comfort. It's the comfort of His omnipresence. We want Him near to us. We want Him near to us in all of our difficulties that we encounter in this world. And we even want Him near to us in our struggle with sin because we realize that as painful as it is to be in His holy presence in the midst of our struggle with sin, there is no other solution. And there is no other comfort. And there's no other place that we can go for help. His omniscience becomes a comfort to us. He knows our frame. He knows our needs and He knows them perfectly. He knows them better than we do. He knows the troubles that we suffer without and He knows the troubles that we suffer within. And He's omnipotent. He is able to help. And if I might add one other thing here, It is not enough to know that he's able to help. We must also be well assured that he is willing to help his children. You remember the leper that approached Jesus and he said, If thou wilt, thou canst make me clean. He's well assured that he can. His question is willingness. Jesus, are you willing? Do you remember Jesus' response? You should never forget it. I will. Be thou There is not a single person that ever approaches the Lord Jesus Christ in faith seeking these benefits that will be refused. And the answer will always be the same. Not only am I able, but I am also willing. Be thou clean. 
The Lord Jesus Christ is uh, strong and mighty for the conquest of our sins and all of our external enemies. And you see how these attributes, so terrifying to the unbeliever, become the richest source of comfort for the believer. I thought we might conclude with Psalm 139, verses 17 through 24. You will remember the psalm well, no doubt. For the understanding of all of the previous verses, all you probably need to keep in mind is that he has said there's no place that he can go from the presence of the Spirit of God. And that God is not only omnipresent or present in all places with respect to being, but also with respect to vision. The psalmist here, David, says, He knows me. He knows me most perfectly. He knows me most intimately. He knew me when I was hidden away in my mother's womb and I was being knit together in the secret parts of the earth, as it's uh, described. We come here to the end of the psalm. And the psalmist, rather than being terrified by God's omniscient gaze, actually calls upon God to search him and to know him. Not because he is well assured of his perfection, but so that God might help him further discover what sins yet remain in him. And then he leans upon God to give him help for repentance, so that he might walk in that perfect way, the way of life everlasting. And let us in this same faith sing unto our God. Please rise. Verses 17 to 24 to the tune Huddersfield.